Hey, it's Nathan Emerson. We're going to start the podcast here in a minute. I'm here with Commander Daddy himself, Jake Menzel. Hey, Nathan, how are you? I'm doing well. And Commander Daddy, you have, I don't actually want to call you Commander Daddy. I want to call you Jake because it's awkward to call you Commander Daddy. But in your position as Commander Daddy, you probably are asked a lot, what kind of resources should people use to become a good father? I am. And the first thing that I tell them is to pick up a copy of Daddy Tried by Tim Bailey. Actually, the second thing I tell them is pick up a copy of Daddy Tried by Tim Bailey. The first thing I tell them is go find a good church. Look, good families, good models. But if somebody just wants to read a book. <laughs> a very if good somebody book. just wants to read a book, they're not going to get very far in becoming a good daddy, but they could do worse. If they want to supplement the other good effort that they're making with a book. Then the first place to start is Daddy Tried by Tim Bailey. That's right. John Frame, no less than John Frame, says Daddy Tried is the best book on fathering currently in print. We don't know. We're not going to say there aren't books that are out of print that are better. But as far as books that are in print, this is clearly the best, according to John Frame and according to us. No doubt. No doubt. Daddy tried, though. That's kind of a weird uh, title. What, what, <coughs> what, 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 what are we getting at? <laughs> what, why would we Fatherhood call it? is so fraught with failure that most dads don't try. And that's why you have dads that run away, dads that are absent, dads that are totally checked out at home, or dads that are just not there. And part of what this book is focused on is hitting head on the issue of failure in our fatherhood and having the courage and the faith to try and fail and to fail by faith, because there's no escaping failure. But this book is a book about failing in the right direction, overcoming the failures of fatherhood. It offers and holds out hope to you because it offers to you the grace of God and the model of God the Father as who we pattern our earthly fatherhood after. And so it's meant to be a help to you, an encouragement to you, and a balm to you as you work to become a good father in the home, in the church, and in the culture. That's right. It's not just for biological fathers. I got a lot out of it, and I have not reproduced with any sort of woman whatsoever, but it's got a lot of helpful advice for any man who finds himself exercising authority anywhere, which is pretty much every man on the planet. So we recommend that every man on the planet pick up a copy of Daddy Tried by Tim Bailey. You can learn more at warhornmedia.com or buy it on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, or wherever fine books are sold. It is available in paperback, Kindle, EPUB, iBooks, and we have an audio version coming soon. That's exciting. And now on with the show! Welcome to another episode of The Booketing. My name is Nathan Hoppers, and I am your humble and obedient host. And I am joined today, as ever, except for sometimes not, by Pastor Jacob Menzel, the pastor who's a master of reading. How are you doing today, Jake? I'm doing well. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing fantastic, sir. And we are not joined by Brandon Chastine today. We're trying to give you how many episodes per month, Jake? Uh, one a week. One a week. So if there's five weeks in a month or five Wednesdays, we'll give you five. If there's four. At least. If there was six. I mean, we're all about giving you episodes every week now. That's like our new thing. I think that's actually on our reward level for like if we get 
hundreds of thousands of dollars, but <laughs> it's like, it's like our last goal of get it when we hit, you know, a thousand dollars a month or something like that. We have almost hit a hundred dollars a month. And so we thought that, I guess that we thought that was good enough. <laughs> Close enough guys. <laughs> we are, uh, incredibly desperate for attention and also we enjoy doing this and, uh, obviously it makes sense to do it every week, but one byproduct of trying to do it every week is sometimes people can't be here. The hardest thing about this show is scheduling around our busy lives. And Brandon has a, as busy a life as they come. So I'm sorry on Brandon's behalf that he can't be here. Sorry on our behalf. Sorry on your behalf that Brandon can't be here. But Brandon can't be here. We today are going to continue our discussion that we had last week about the Newbery Award. There was some stuff that I wasn't quite satisfied with, Jake. What was that? Well, I wasn't quite satisfied with our discussion. We had, we got a lot of good feedback on the the Twitter and the the social uh, medias from uh, yes. from people, and people had some thoughtful responses. But I wasn't quite satisfied with how we wrapped up our discussion of. Particularly the the amazing thing that I said, where I said that I really don't think reading is a virtue. Like we shouldn't we shouldn't teach kids that that reading is some kind of virtue. And all those posters that you see on your grade school walls and your high school mm-hmm. walls and your library walls with a picture of a kid and they're reading a book and behind them there's this magical world floating over their head of rainbows and castles and knights and you know it's just like gonna open your mind to new discoverings and but fly in the sky i can go twice as high take a look it's in a book reading rainbow i get sued by lavar burton for that yes i can do i can do anything obviously (laughs) um i don't think people can do anything i think lavar burton's wrong i'm gonna come out against this is the anti-lavar burton christian literature podcast you can listen to any christian literature podcast that's like lavar burton's great but we stake our claim as the first ever literature podcast to go against that malicious liar, <laughs> LeVar Burton. How do you feel about Wishbone, though? Oh, Wishbone's great. <laughs> I love half an hour spoilers for <laughs> literature <laughs> with a cute little dog <laughs> pretending to be the hero of <laughs> the Three Musketeers or whatever. That's wonderful. I wanted to start today with a quote from C.S. Lewis. But Nathan, you guys always make fun of C.S. Lewis and people that read C.S. Lewis. Shut up, idiot. What we're trying to say, we're making fun of people that try and write like C.S. Lewis and turn their lives into C.S. Lewis lives. We like C.S. Lewis. I mean, he does some crazy stuff. He's not, you know, I mean, nuance, nuance, whatever. But C.S. Lewis wrote some good stuff. And one of my favorite C.S. Lewis passages comes from Mere Christianity. I think this ties in, and I think you'll 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 maybe see why. This is actually C.S. Lewis talking about romance and sex and all that stuff. It's his chapter on Mere Christianity about that. And he says, um... People get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on, quote-unquote, being in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, they think this proves that they have made a mistake and are entitled to change, not realizing that when you have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. In this department of life, as in every other, thrills come 
at the beginning and do not last. The sort of thrill a boy has at the first idea of flying will not go on when he has joined the RAF and is really learning to fly. The thrill you feel on first seeing some delightful place dies away when you really go to live there. Does that mean it would be better not to learn to fly and not to live in the beautiful place? By no means. In both cases, if you go through with it, the dying away of the first thrill will be compensated for by a quieter and more lasting kind of interest. What is more, and I can hardly find words to tell you how important I think this is, it is just the people who are ready to submit to the loss of the thrill and settle down to the sober interest who are then most likely to meet new thrills in some quite different direction. The man who has learned to fly and becomes a good pilot will suddenly discover music. The man who has settled down to live in the beauty spot will discover gardening. This is, I think, one little part of what Christ meant by saying that a thing will not really live unless it first dies. It is simply no good trying to keep any thrill. That is the very worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go. Let it die away. Go on through that period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follow, and you will find you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. But if you decide to make thrills your regular diet and try to prolong them artificially, they will all get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer, and you will be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. It is because so few people understand this that you find many middle-aged men and women maundering about their lost youth at the very age when new horizons ought to be appearing and new doors opening all around them. It is much better fun to learn to swim than to go on endlessly and hopelessly trying to get back the feeling you had when you first went paddling as a small boy. <clears throat> That's a big quote. A big quote? Yeah, it was long. That is a long quote. It's certainly one of the C.S. Lewis passages that reoccurs to me all the time and for all kinds of different things. It's been important to my understanding of lots of different things. And so... What in particular did you latch onto about it, and how does it how does it relate to the? Well, obviously he's talking about romance, and I mean I think we all, for not idiots, we know that that's part of you know you fall in love and it's this glorious romantic thing, and then you find that oh there's real work and and if you're always trying to get back to puppy love, then you're an idiot. So how does this tie into what we're talking about? I think it just ties into all kinds of stuff from me discovering when I first learned to like music, I learned to like the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Now, you can spend your whole life trying to keep what's magical alive about the Beatles. And, you know, I still like to go back and listen to the Beatles, but it's more fun to discover new things. You know, it's it's as simple as that. You know, it's just one of those things. Like, if I just put on Abbey Road every day, you know, I actually remember a period of my life where I was like, oh, I've heard Abbey Road a billion times. This isn't as exciting as it used to be. And you can grasp for Abbey Road to give you that same like transcendent feeling that you had when you first heard Abbey Road or you can listen to Radiohead or <laughs> whatever. So I don't know. It's a, it's an important sort of paradigm for how I think about all kinds of different things, actually, including something as trite as the Beatles. <laughs> um, what you're describing is the shine wears off and then what happens next? Well, then you have a choice. You can go deeper and you can accept a sober interest in something and you can do the work that it takes to have a sober real interest. And then you can find these new, as he says, quieter, more lasting joys like you do in marriage, like you do in music, like you do in all kinds of things, or you can cling desperately to those first thrills. And that, I think, neatly encapsulates what I think is wrong with a lot of the way that people try to teach kids to read, the way that they try to cast the idea of reading and literature, actually. Is that it's all cheap thrills? Is that it's all cheap thrills, and people don't distinguish between cheap thrills and the discipline and the work that it takes to actually find that lasting joy in something that is quieter, as he says, but also 
more profound. That's what those posters don't make any distinction between. And so when I say that I'm cynical about, you know, teaching people to read, it's not that I don't think there's any, it's not that I don't agree with you when you then said in the podcast, actually, I think there is an inherent virtue in reading, which that was you from the perspective of a parent, right? I think, you know, if I can get into your brain here, I'm guessing you're thinking like, well, I have kids that should learn to read and they need to learn to read good stuff. But, you know, if I can get them to read Harry Potter or Hunger Games or whatever it is, Boys of Blur, to start with, then any opening, any crack I can find to kind of get them going, anything I can do to light that fuse is a good thing in some sense. You want to, I'm at a place in my thinking about this that I'm not discovering what I think about it. And I'm also, I've also, I'm not on the other side of it where I've fully formed it. Right. So I feel in this gray space <laughs> where I can't really strike down a path or <laughs> open it up. <laughs> I live in that gray space. For me, that gray space is called the bookening. So <laughs> forge forward, my son. <laughs> I'll meet you on the other side. <laughs> well, reading is a discipline, and all disciplines produce fruit if uh, you stick to them. I think we ought to think about reading like we think about any other discipline where we want to get a good result. And you have to be able to inspire your kids to do the hard work and to do the little things that will get them there. And so any kid can watch LeBron James or Steph Curry or Kevin Durant play basketball or Michael Jordan, you know, and sing a song, I want to be like Mike, imagine themselves soaring through the heights, through the sky, you know, dunking all over everybody or uh, flipping up a, a shot from 10 feet behind the three-point line and turning your back on it and walking away because you know it's going in. But doing the hard work to actually get to that point is something altogether different. And what we don't want to do as adults is train our kids to go through their whole lives and to be adults who think it's really cool that they can dunk on eight-foot goals. You know, and pretend to be Michael Jordan still. Is eight foot goals good or bad? <laughs> a normal basketball goal is ten foot tall. So, okay. I, I mean, you you are what six two, six three, right? Yes. So you can probably reach up and grab rim on an eight foot goal right now, and you're sitting down, right? So, so <laughs> but this door is seven foot tall, right? Dunking, doing uh, Michael Jordan like dunks on an eight foot goal, it doesn't speak well of you as a as a grown man okay metaphor understood go on <laughs> you know being really good at curling five pound weights you know or being really good at playing chopsticks on the piano or the point is if you want to be great at something you have to have a vision for what you can be through hard work and self-discipline but then you have to do the hard work and apply the self-discipline to doing the little mundane very difficult things and as a parent you have to be wise in how you how you address that with your kids. You need to inspire them and they need to feel the joy of success. They need to feel small successes. They need to have the accomplishment of reading through their first chapter book and they need to be able to be transported to a different world. They need to be able to play their first song on the piano and it's not going to be, you know, Bach. They need those small little successes. They need to be able to, to get eight reps in on their on their five pound weight curls, you know. What you want to do though is move them beyond that so that they don't just stay there. That that requires pushing your kids and disciplining your kids and teaching them, you know, what it takes. And and uh, the fact is, it's really hard to be Michael Jordan. Right. It's most really aren't. And yeah, most most people in fact are not Michael Jordan. Right. And if you were to go back into the 90s and spend a day with Michael Jordan, you would realize how hard it is to be Michael Jordan. And you would see him doing all of the little things that your 
five, seven, eight, and 10 year old son complains about and giving himself to a, down to running up and down the court, just running, 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 or simple little ball drills. Uh, if you were to go to a major league baseball game, you would see before the game, you'd see guys hitting off of tees, right? Just like in t-ball, hitting off of tees, working on their fundamentals. If you were to go behind the scenes to any great, any great music performer, you would see them practicing their scales. Uh, the point is, I th- you know, I see sort of both sides of this, and I want to, I want to make a place for saying, you know, it's good for my kids to have a little over-the-door basketball goal that they can dunk on and imagine themselves being LeBron James because it feeds their desire to really want to soar. But it also then needs to translate into hard work and self-discipline. And guess what? My kids are never going to be LeBron James. They don't have the, they don't have the genetics. They're not going to be six right. foot eight, 240-pound monsters among men who happen to be the best basketball player in the world. It's just not going not gonna to happen. But if they can be inspired by LeBron James... If they can be inspired by watching uh, from the Lewis quote, watching the plane soar through the sky or maybe riding on the plane, then they can be inspired to do the hard work and realize, you know, when they get there that, yeah, flying an airplane requires knowing how to handle all the the controls. And it's not as glorious as everything going smoothly and perfectly like they imagined it when they were five years old, right? You know, it's not like I watched Top Gun and I imagined how cool it would be to <laughs> right. fly a fighter jet to and, and to be Maverick, right? And... It's not. It's not going to be as easy as it looks. Yeah, I guess it, 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 I'm not quite sure how to articulate it, but it's like I want to puke when I see the pundits on both sides. Kind of. It's. It's like you have so much cheap packaged transcendence in our in our liberal culture today. You know, you've got you've got people just you know with the reading. It's just reading is magical and it takes you to a whole nother world. Right. You know, you have Sprite commercials that are telling you how beautiful America it is, is or how great and transcendent your sex life will be if you drink Sprite or whatever. You know, it's just it's real cheap what yeah, they're you buy, offering you. You buy these shoes and maybe you'll be able to Dunk like my, it's got to be the shoes, right? right. <laughs> or you drink this Gatorade because they want they want to sell you something, and if they can make you feel transcendently something, then you might buy it. The closest you can get to Michael Jordan is being that guy in that YouTube video with his full Michael Jordan jersey and the armbands on his forearm and two hundred and fifty dollars Jordans shoes. Then you know people are willing to buy that, right? But then you've got kind of the conservative Christian typical response, which is. Be done with your transcendence and just learn Latin and read boring books by Christians that actually aren't very good but have solid moral content, like this dumb book that I had to read in my Christian school called The Shining Sword or something like that, where he got like the sword of truth and he fought the giant. It was just like real lame faux bunion. We read that for English class, I think, and it was bad English and it was bad everything except for, you know, it made a good point. But man, did you have to slog through some junk to get to the good point. So I don't just want to be lame and say like, you have to strike the middle road, the balance, whatever. But I do think real life is a weird mix of the mundane and the transcendent, the side of heaven. And you have to kind of have a vision for both and a discipline for both. And you have to let the transcendent be disciplined by the mundane somehow with anything, you know, I mean, with anything, with 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 uh, being a mother, you know, you, so, you see so many mom, mommy blogs that 
hit one side of this or the other. There's either the one like being a mommy is just changing diapers and it's mundane and you know what's that thing called now? It's kind of bad mom. Bad mom. You know we're all bad. I moms. hate it. I hate every part of being a mom and it's okay to hate it all <laughs> right. and just all really be all. terrible at and then, it and be a hot mess mom. And then there's the ones that have like these these pictures from the 19th century of like this glowing cherubic kids surrounding this like beautiful bosomy lady you know in a yellow dress with sun dappled thing coming in through the curtains and it's just like motherhood the glories the transcendent glories of of motherhood and it's like if you don't understand that there's something transcendent about being a mother then you won't be able to be a mother especially in a culture that by and large uh, hates motherhood but if you don't understand that it involves changing a lot of diapers and doing a lot of menial making of grilled cheese sandwiches and yelling at kids to pick the Legos up off the ground, then you're not going to be a good mother either. So when it comes to reading, how does how does that all tie in? I mean, it's, I don't know. I, I feel like when we cast this vision for reading, it's cheap. Well, yeah, it doesn't... Maybe maybe the reason it feels cheap is because it doesn't ever have any element of do hard things attached to it. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talk all the time on our show about how art is not an end in, it, in itself. Right. And reading is not an end in itself. Reading is meant to serve a higher purpose. And my goal with my kids is to get them... Like the other day, I was, I was sitting and um, I was trying to find a... There, there used to be when I was a kid, these videos of like people talking about how hard Larry Bird worked at, at basketball to right. get where he got and how he was the guy who outworked everybody. And, and there were, you know, this is set to like footage of him running stairs through the uh, Boston Gardens with nobody around. Just he was there. He was the one who was going to be there by himself running up and down the stairs and putting in the work. And I was trying to find some of these videos on YouTube because what I wanted to do was I wanted to first show some some cool highlights. And I look for Jordan too and some other guys. Uh, but Larry Bird's perfect because he doesn't look like he should be a great NBA basket, all-time NBA basketball player. And not just because he's white, but because he's awkward looking. He just looks like a dorky He just looks like guy, a very yeah. dorky, weird white guy from Southern Indiana, which is kind of what my kids are. are. Right. And so, um, but here's this guy who, you know, and he worked his tail off. And so I wanted to f- first show some highlights of him being awesome and then show what it took to get there. Because, you know, if I show highlight NBA highlight videos to my kids, they want to get on the little seven foot goal and dunk around and pretend to be great. But if I can do that and inspire them and then say, okay, now this is what it takes to be great at something, then I can take that, I can work on challenging them to do hard things, and then I can apply that to other areas of their life. So sports is just one way that you can do that. There are lots of ways you can do that. My goal, you know, with reading with my kids is to find the way to inspire them, to show them, to sort of unlock those first steps of, you know, what can happen if they become good readers and then get them excited about reading and then willing to do the hard work to grow as readers, to grow an understanding as readers and and to see more and more of the payoff as they get better and they're able to read better things. And ultimately, I want it to, to translate into them really reading and understanding the word of God as richly as they possibly can and Mm -hmm. uh, apply it to their lives as richly as they possibly can. And our goal with this podcast is not and has not been just to make you guys, to make ourselves better readers of fiction or simply conversant with with the classics. That's that's an important thing. A fine and worthy thing in and of itself. Um, But but beyond that, you know, what my hope, one of my hopes for uh, this podcast is that some people are going to 
find themselves reading fiction who haven't been reading much of anything except for BuzzFeed articles, <laughs> right? Right, or whatever the, you know you find on, on on social media, and and develop a hunger for an appreciation for doing the work of reading something and uh, getting that payoff. Then apply that to theology and to scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sense in which you can think of the bookending as as training wheels. <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree 100%. I, I think the thing for me is that what I don't like is when people, yes, you have to do those drills in order to become Michael Jordan. Yes, if you're going to soar above the heavens in your RFA plane, you have to learn how to work the dials and stuff like that. I think what where the, the mistake that a lot of people make is they try and then say, actually, those dials are in and of themselves transcendent. That's that's the mistake that I see with people trying to teach kids to read maybe is 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 they is what they what they, a lot of Christians do certainly is they say actually the mundane is transcendent. Actually reading the boring sections from Dostoevsky is wonderful and you know and then they just like uh, post some dumb painting that they don't understand on on their uh, right. on their Twitter, you right. know. We're uh, going to take back the culture through the arts. I don't know. I'm going to now search for famous paintings and start posting them in Twitter without having any <laughs> any discernment whatsoever. Because or... it's transcendent. It's engaging with the culture. It's the glories of the past. And it's like, actually, when we I'm read... I'm going to read the top 50 books, and I'm going to read the top 50... Watch the top 50 movies, and I'm going to... Get on Twitter and say, like, wow, I sure did learn something today from reading Thackeray's Vanity Fair or whatever, you know, from reading Moby Dick. Oh, man, here's a quote from Moby Dick I found. Uh, there's nothing necessary. I mean, I, I sort of appreciate the optimism, but I think some of it is a little bit misplaced because, in fact, it is hard work sometimes. We loved, uh, we haven't released our Conrad episodes yet, but, but uh, spoiler, we, we really liked Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness also has these big pages with no paragraph breaks that are just kind of ant- intimidating. And you look at them and you're just like, oh, I could, I could be watching American Ninja right now instead. You know, I could be playing on on my phone. I could be Angry Birds, whatever the kids do now. And I think that there's a real choice and a real work and a real uh, diligence. And I don't want to pretend like I'm very virtuous. Oftentimes I, I choose not to be diligent over over diligence. But what, what I don't want to do is pretend like you will immediately find these rich deposits of gold without really working for it when you crack open a classic work of literature, for example, you know, that you'll immediately be struck by all this brilliance and that if you were just smart enough, wise enough, godly enough, you would transcend what seems mundane about these things and suddenly, you know, break on through to the other side. In fact, there will be times where you'll just have to work for it you know, where it will just be you doing your drills. You'll have to calculate the value of doing those drills with the value of what you're eventually going to get out of it. And I don't want to lie to people about that. You know, that's what I don't like about those posters is they promise that this transcendent thrill, and to me, it has the stench of death that the Coke commercials have when they promise a transcendent American youthful experience by drinking Coca-Cola. Because I'm just like, you know, And what I think it does is it sets people up to fail and it sets people up to just read cheap literature looking for those thrills for the rest of their lives. It sets them up to start with 
reading Harry oh, Potter, which I like, a... and then stay with, you know, which I like just for people who are wondering because we always make fun of it. But it's just a good go-to populist thing. Harry Potter, you know, you start with Harry Potter and then you're going to end with Harry Potter and you're going to f- spend the rest of your life looking for more Harry Potters because nobody ever told you, actually, you got to do a little work here, mm-hmm. you know. It, Jane Austen didn't come easy to me, so... She must have failed. But you hear us talking about her, and it's like, she's funny, she's brilliant. We did find those rich deposits of gold, but you had to slog through the first 50 pages of Emma to figure out what she was doing. And that does bring us back to another C.S. Lewis quote, though, that we use often, which is that if the first job of any writer is to be entertaining, right? right? He is to capture your attention and, and your imagination. And so we're constantly sort of trying to find the balance here. And, you know, where we fought, uh, thought Faulkner landed was, hey, dude, give a, give us something to right. enjoy as we go through this thing. And don't don't just make it all dial turning. Have some windows on in the cockpit so that we can see the see the clouds, see the horizon, <laughs> you know. Well, and there's, um, I think I talked about it with Brandon when you weren't there. There's that famous thing where um, some person comes up to Faulkner and says, I don't know whether this is apocryphal or not, but somebody says, I've read as I lay dying six times and I still don't understand what to mean. What should I do? And Faulkner says, read at seven. And it's like, we've got jobs and lives. Okay, maybe there is gold at the end of that seven, but you know, and maybe you could be Michael Jordan if you decided all you wanted to do with your life is be Michael Jordan. Maybe there's some people that aren't called by God to be Michael Jordan and maybe most of us aren't called to understand (laughs) Faulkner, you know what I mean? Um, Right. Life is short and hard at best and there are lots of better things to be reading than fiction. Yeah. And so when it comes to reading fiction we want to read the best and we want to get what we can from it learn what we ought to learn from it and grow in our ability to understand it and move on to other things move on to life the good books like we said they should be entertaining they should let you look outside the cockpit and see the clouds enough that it's not just dial turning and you patting yourself on the back because you know how to turn those dials better than anybody else but at the end of the day it does have to have its proper place and maybe that's the other thing that i resent about those posters with rainbows and dragons is that they seem to evoke this virtue of reading as an end in and of itself a glorious thing that you could give your life to and as a matter of fact it's like you said it's training wheels it's a thing that that yeah it's it really is. It's training wheels. We're not even in the in the weight room with with some of the classic fiction. We're in the cardio room. Right. Right. We're, we're standing outside we're doing, the gym smoking when we read like Dracula <laughs> or something like that. Like, yes, that's exactly <laughs> maybe, right. Maybe at best it's, it's it like, inspires uh, us to say, yeah, maybe it would be good to throw down the cigarette like and go out and work. Pa- pl- work planet out. Fitness when they have their pizza nights. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, pizza nights are fun. Harry Potter's fun. Uh, we're not totally opposed to standing outside the gym burning one every once in a while, but... <laughs> But uh, let's get back in the gym and get back up on the treadmill and start lifting those five-pound weights, and maybe we'll lift 10-pound weights and get to 20-pound weights, and maybe our kids... You know, we'll get, we'll do a better job with them. But let's understand what the goal is. You know, let's, it's like working out, you know, it's good to be in shape. I say this as someone that's worked out maybe a total of five minutes over my 30 plus years. Of course, it's good to be in shape. Of course, it's glorifying to God to treat your body well, to be responsible for it, all that sort of thing. But your body's going to die and then you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God and you're, there's going to be a lot bigger things on your mind and um, on his mind. 
mind than how great your cardiovascular routine was every day. And that's the same thing with reading the great works of literature. The one thing we don't want to do with this podcast is say reading is this great, wonderful, transcendent thing in and of itself. First, go to your church and go to a good church, love your church, obey your pastor, get married, love your husband, love your wife, have kids, work a job, work hard at the job, witness to people, share the gospel, do all the simple stuff. And read then, your Bible. You know, read your Bible. Yeah, do all the, 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 the Christian duties and um, be a, a good person living in this world but not being of this world. And, and then you will naturally, as you have time, be able to buttress that with some healthy, fun, entertaining reading of books. But uh, it has to have its place. It's not, this, it's not that important. I mean, Shakespeare, it's going to burn with all the rest of it eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, Shakespeare might have the best Homer right now, has, it has, it has the biggest run of anybody, been around for, what, what 3,000, 4,000 years. But 3,000, 4,000 years is just an eye blink in the, grand you know, scheme. in the grand scheme of things. So put it all in perspective. Don't let us, with this podcast, where we're going to come on every week and talk about how delighted we were or discuss, you know, you could, you could get the impression over 40 episodes that we think reading is very important. We do think it's important and we do enjoy it. But ultimately, there's... There's many things that are more important. We here don't, we don't believe in art for art's sake. We don't believe in reading for reading's sake. We believe in reading as a means to an end. Right. And an enjoyable means. Sometimes the end can be an escape after a busy day. We're not opposed to that, but right. that can't be all that it is. And if you spend your life making, and, and, and so many people do, you know, I mean, I felt a little bad evoking the redneck stereotype that I did in our last episode, but it's really true that I have a lot of relatives and a lot of friends and, or people that I've known over the years when I was a janitor, certainly actually, I knew a lot of people. So I don't want to say it's just, uh, <laughs> I really don't want to be classist, but there's just a certain type of person, a woman generally that I've known who reads a lot of Harlequin romance, reads a lot of James Patterson. It's it's the market that Fifty Shades of Grey was designed for, and the only market, I think, that really appreciated that book is people that are, are just looking to get those cheap thrills and to forget about how stupid their lives are. That's ultimately destructive. And I think because reading is a potent artistic medium, because it requires more of you, because it requires more mental energy than, say, watching a movie, I would argue... More active commitment. More active commitment. You have to shut out the rest of the world. You can't be listening to music or watching TV. Or if you can, you're a, you have a more mental capacity than I do. It requires more of you. And I think it can therefore be more helpful than a lot of other artistic mediums because it's going to be training you and making you invest your emotions in ways that others aren't. It can also be more destructive if you're reading bad stuff. Personally, I mean, take this, take this with a grain of salt. I, my, my world wouldn't fall apart if someone disproved this. But personally, I think written erotica is probably somehow more destructive in certain ways than I'm not now it's evil to look at like Playboy let's say but there's a reason there's lots of slash even in the in a world where a naked lady is only ever one click away I think there's a reason that people still write the stupid slash fiction and erotic fiction and stuff it's because it can grow in your mind and you know you can make your own perfect little erotic world and it can be destructive in a whole other disgusting way that some of that other stuff just is destructive in a more bland way Mm -hmm. really um so i don't know what are the what are the takeaways what are we what are we trying to say here reading's a potent medium for good or for evil and it's not an end in itself 
And, and you keep saying that when you say that, what is it an end for? I mean, we've sort of said it, but how would you just say it? Again, our, our goal is, is to glorify God in all that we do and to live God li- godly and upright lives in Christ Jesus. Which means loving God and loving Which our neighbor. Which means loving God and loving our neighbor. It doesn't mean trying to transform the culture through the arts. It means trying to be godly and to take responsibility first at home, to uh, love our husbands and wives and love our children and love our neighbors and love our church family. If we read, it's be- if we're reading fiction, um, it's strengthening our muscles, mm-hmm. the muscles of our mind and our imagination. And if we're engaging with reading as Christians, no matter what it is, it's hopefully strengthening our moral imagination. Um, some books are better for that than others. I think it's always doing something to our moral But it's always doing something. And so we, we're engaging it actively and we're growing and we are we're reading something great even books that have awful things in them by pagans if they've stood the test of time they're still getting something right generally about human nature about the way the world works the way that god made the world and that's going to help us lord willing engage grow in empathy grow in our our knowledge of people our love of people and help us as we try to become better students of god's word you know it is sort of a little bit of fiction can be like doing your calisthenics in the morning, get mm-hmm. you going. And so, you know, the goal the goal is never simply transcendent artistic experiences as we read or uh, pretending like having some kind of transcendent experience through a book is going to be transformative in any kind of meaningful or lasting way. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, primarily through the Word of God as it's preached and taught. And and God can use His truths, because all truths are His truths, in any kind of artistic medium. But really the way that we want to think about about art is it's something that's that comes out of and is produced as a as a byproduct of a of a, a godly culture. Yeah. God didn't call us to be aesthetics who don't eat he didn't he also didn't call us to be gourmands who live their life to find the perfect seasoned steak the perfect whatever you know enjoy that steak enjoy a good book enjoy it if you're not enjoying it you're probably doing something wrong you're and if you're not enjoying a good steak then you're probably doing something wrong but if you're primary goal in life is to enjoy good steaks, then you're an idiot. Your primary goal should be to eat food so that it gives you the nutrients to go out and do other things. Food's not a bad way to think about it because we don't want to be just that. We don't want to be addicted to junk food. We we don't want to be crass utilitarians in how we eat, just pure fuel for the machine that is my body. And we don't want to be self-indulgent gourmands, as you you put it. Food is for the body. The body's for food. And in the end, both perish. Yeah. I mean, you also, and you also don't want to be like everyone's mom who says, Brussels sprouts taste just like candy. No, they don't. You should learn to eat Brussels sprouts and candy both in their places. I don't think you have to pretend like Brussels sprouts taste like candy, which is maybe all I'm saying about those stupid posters. So maybe the last thing to say is just if you're one of these Christians that wants to, uh, I get so uncomfortable when Christians talk about how we're going to redeem the culture by redeeming the arts. You know, we're going to, where are our great writers? Where are our great painters? If we just had them, then we could, we could completely change the culture. I don't think it's true. What I think that that is, is everyone in our culture makes an idol out of the arts. And so what we want to do is we want to say that, you know, 
know, that idol that you're worshiping, actually, that idol is, is, is quite a bit like God, and it points you towards God. And I kind of understand the instinct, but what most good Christians have always done throughout history is smash the idols down and tell people why the idols are wicked. So in a culture that makes idols, that makes high priests out of their artists, out of their novelists, out of their playwrights, out of their filmmakers especially, out of their actors and actresses, we don't need more Christians to tell you why, oh, you know, the idol is actually good. What we need is for people to say that the idol is wicked and to put the arts in their place, which is as a very good thing, a gift from God, a way that we can be like God and be creative in the ways that he's creative and glorify him. But a very small part of what we do, which is to love people and to glorify God again. So we're not going to retake the culture through the arts. If we try and do that, the arts will simply end up devouring us. And that's what you see happen to a lot of guys. It's a lie and it's wrong. And I just don't think, you know, our, our culture is wicked. I don't, I don't think a novel or a play or a movie is, is going to change that. What's going to change that is loving people and doing our work and letting our light shine. And if you happen to be in an artistic field, I'm not saying don't strive for excellence. I'm not saying don't do a great job. I'm not saying you can't glorify God with those things, but let it be one part of your life. Let it be not all-consuming. Don't be proud. Do it with humility and let God use you in whatever station he wants to use you. If he wants to make you the next Shakespeare or the next, next Bach, he might. He could. My opinion, he probably won't. My opinion, our culture is degraded enough that probably uh, probably we're not going to see a lot of box and Shakespeare's. I, I certainly, you know, and I say this as somebody who wanted to be the great American novelist growing up, and, and I still do creative things. These podcasts are an, a creative expression, a very fun, enjoyable one for me, but they're not the point. It's, 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 it's not a big deal, and it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. So just just do the best with what God's given you and 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 don't think that you're so important, you know, if you happen especially if you happen to be an artistic type just because the world tells you you're a special beautiful snowflake artist, don't believe it. It's not true. James says, you know, we're all vapor. Don't say I'm going to do this or that with my life because you're a mist who's here for a time and then you're gone and you're forgotten. Instead, say, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. And that's what people need to do in the arts. If the Lord wills, we'll write some good songs, we'll write some good plays, we'll write some good movies, whatever it is. But let's not make a bigger thing out of it than it, than it is. Let's let's have a sense of humor about it. Let's keep it in, in proportion for everything a place and everything in its place kind of thing, you know? So especially if, if, if you're a young person that listens to this podcast because you love books and you love literature, it's okay to love them. Love them. We love them too. We love reading these books. There's a reason the first ever Warhorn Media podcast was the booking. It was because we wanted to do something fun and engaging and something that would be delightful for us, you know, because we love to read and we love these authors and we love learning from them and we love having stories told to us by master storytellers you know it's great it's very enjoyable it's wonderful it's one of my favorite things but it's not the thing that matters to me the most it's not the thing that defines my life and it can't be and it should be and insofar as it is i should repent of it and you should too so especially if you're a young person learn the lesson of the truly greats you know jane austen the way her nephew tells it was that she was a woman that would happily put down her writing if she had her nieces and nephews over and she needed to love on them. 
And that's the kind of woman or man that you want to be is the kind of person that understands that, you know, it's great to write a great novel like Jane Austen, but even better is to play with your nieces and nephews and love them. You don't overtake the mundane with the transcendent. You overtake the transcendent with the mundane. Yeah, uh, no, uh, to my knowledge, no great American novel has been written by uh, 20-year-olds who imagine themselves being able to write the great American novel, so they participated in NaNoWriMo. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) There we go. That's a good end line. Day was written and produced by me, Nathan Alverson. It was performed by Nathan Alverson and Jake Metzel. We're going to be back next week with Heart of Darkness. It will be followed up by what, Jake? Murder on the Orient Express. That great transcendent literary work. Not candy at all. Not candy at all. Complete Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. 